so much for this opportunity to be here today in your house, Lord. Um, Father, I pray that you'll be with this body of believers that you've assembled here. Um, God, bless each and every one of us. May we hear your message loud and clear. 
Father, I pray that you'll work in our hearts so that we can work for you and your kingdom. God, I pray that you'll push us forward to greater, greater heights than we've ever been to in Jesus. And I pray that uh, for all the people that were not able to make it here or, or chose not to be here, Lord, I pray for them that you would watch them, protect them, and, and just tug on their heartstrings, Lord. Father, be with our country. Lift us up. Help us be unified. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, I'm crazy, so. 
the prayer that we ought to be praying sometimes, we think is reign in the world, reign in the nations. And that is good. We want that. We want God to be in charge of praise. Oh, God. Have your way on earth as it is in heaven. We pray for God's sovereignty to be in control of all things. The truth is, he's in control of all things. And then we pray, reign in me. Start there. Start there, reign in me, God, because this is a, this is a universe. This is a megaverse. This is bigger than bigger than outer space and all of it. Inside here, it's really big. God, reign in me. It's a space that only He can fill. Wow, that's awesome. All right, so we come to that moment in time in our service where we ask ourselves, "How has the Lord been speaking this week?" And I've been reminding you each week, and I'm continuing to do so, uh, that you serve. We're practicing the spiritual discipline of service, and so today I'm going to give you the. Oh, I don't know, it's probably about 60, 90 seconds, something like that, snippet on spiritual discipline of service. Again, and that is, to serve is a spiritual discipline. It is not going to get you to heaven. It is not going to cleanse your soul. There is no penance, no amount of service that you can do that will make you feel better about the things that you did that were wrong. When you drill down on something that you did that was wrong, you're going you're gonna to face that. You may have like a traumatic flashback. You may go, man, I never should have said that. I never should have done that. And we as Christians are not meant to be wrapped up. Hey. Not meant to be wrapped up in regret. Right? We let regret go. All old things passed away when we became new in Christ. And then you got to realize that that whole principle of penance and trying to solve your problems by doing some kind of service is not going to happen. Service is a spiritual discipline. God is a servant. There's so many parables about service where it shows God serving, Jesus serving. He says that Jesus said, if you knew what I did here to you, 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 you'd be amazed. And now you've got to do to one another what I've done to you. He said that, like at that foot washing, of course I paraphrased that whole thing, but the bottom line is he served the disciples who got down and washed their dirty nasty feet and then they're going to do the same to each other. And so, I'm talking. You listen. Okay, so anyway, the point is, service is a spiritual discipline. So what is the purpose of a spiritual discipline? It hones us, it refines us, it teaches us. We learn through it, we grow through it. We experience the world kind of more, hopefully, from God's perspective when we serve others. And sometimes service is not easy. Sometimes serving people who don't want to be served is extremely difficult. Sometimes serving people who desperately need to be served and they really want to be served may cost you literally everything. There are people who have given their lives in service to others, Jesus being the prime example. So before we think we can get by without serving, if Jesus couldn't get by without serving, I don't think we can either. Service as a spiritual discipline. And we've asked ourselves to study that for six months and to work together to discipline ourselves in service. And so I hope you've been serving. If you have not, please do so. And then come share an encouraging story or something you learned or saw, because it is about growing. It is about refining yourself. Um, and so... Let me ask you now, what have you seen this week, what have you heard this week from the Word or in person, or maybe through service, something like that? Tell me what you've seen. Go ahead, throw the phone to I didn't see it. Okay, so you're on. Um, I always say, once a month, I feel like this is where I put my heart. You've got to drop it yourself. But uh, in the video, I just think it's encouraging or re-encouraging in times of adversity. Uh, you have any questions, uh, like I always say, you know, share your video and let me know what you think, and she's going to sing fast, so listen to her. She's quick. At the end, she's quick. Let's die. Let's die.
feel the rain on my skin. I hear my heart beating within. I feel the spirit in the wind. Bigger than what I see in front of me. Deeper than the valleys below my feet. I'm in between two worlds that meet.
thought that was really cool that, you know, we can still walk in peace. We also walk in God's authority, who we are and who he says we are, and that changed. I was thinking of 2 Timothy chapter 2. Feel free to read it. I think it's an awesome chapter. I, I think the verse isn't enough, but Timoth or Paul tells Timothy, he says, even though I'm in chains, God's word is unchanged. And I thought that was just encouraging for everybody else. Like, no matter what we're going through, you know, the world desires are trying to compromise us, slow us down, uh, bring us to a halt, make us look like them. But God's word is still unchanged. You know, I, I'm working at not boasting, you know, boasting the cross. I'm working 12-hour days right now with a mask on my face. I don't think I'm better than anybody else. I mean, I'm literally like, uh, you know, and just going out and still being able to serve people, still out there, you know, and, and reaching out to my family and kids. And I, I'm still learning how to be a better dad and a better husband. But by the glory of God, where I'm at right now, I mean, just because God's word is unchanged, put yourself in that picture. No matter what, even if you feel like you're changed, even if you feel like you're going through something, God's word is unchanged. In Jeremiah 17, you can look up the whole chapter. That's a good one. Read the whole chapter. But there's a verse that people always use and never get to the next verse, and it kind of breaks my heart, but they say this. They say that um, the heart is wicked above, and who can tame it? They use that all the time. But then right after it, it says, and if you look it up, it says right after it, I am the Lord who searches your heart and examines your heart, and I reward the conduct of your deeds. Right. So I, the Lord, search your heart. So yeah, your heart is wicked above, and who can tame it? Who, who can do it? But then I, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, it says Lord, not capital all of it. I, the Lord, searches you. He knows us. He knows what we're dealing with. And, you know, I also want to say, encourage each other. Send me a video. Send me your music video. I want to see who you know. I want to see who you got. I really believe, even as, a, as a brothers in Christ, man, we can really inspire each other to get through the everyday. The adversity really is just a spiritual war. I mean, the enemy is not going to stop until Jesus returns. The enemy has every reign, not R-E-I-G-N, God's, his reign, to allow him to reign here. You know, just to just be an accuser, of the brethren, which the sisters to just accuse us all day, all night, you know, and so we together as a body, through Jesus, we're really the only force that this world has. That's a good word. Anybody else have a word, Sheriff? Um, there's a there's an old song that I like. It's from a band called Frank the Benjamin. There's it's one of their older songs. I don't know if this. I, I highly doubt what they mean by it, but. First verse in the song is really cool because it. I'll just read real quick. It says, "I have nothing left to give. I found the perfect end where you made you were made to make it hurt, disappear into the dirt, carry me into heaven arms, light the way and let me go. Take the time to take my breath. I will end where I begin. I will find the enemy within." Because I feel it crawling beneath my skin. I think that's really cool because when we come to Christ, we we find that person inside of us that we're meant to be. But we also find the enemy that keeps us from trying to be that person. So that that person you want to be in Christ is always there. It's been there since the day you were born. But also the person who Satan wants you to be is there too. So you have to be careful and you have to you have to find your perfect end. And your perfect end is in Christ. And then where it says, uh, I will end where I begin. When we die as Christians, we end where it all began. And that is in heaven with God. So I, I didn't really, that really didn't dawn on me until a couple days ago when I heard the song on the radio. 
and I, I listened to it, and I was like, you know, I don't necessarily know if that's what they mean in that song, but that is really powerful because it, where the enemy you have in you is not stronger than God. And when you end, the enemy doesn't win. God wins. So as long as you have God and Jesus in your life, then when you die, you win. So that means everything you face through your entire life would, would be 100 years. That entire 100 years, every single trial, failure, obstacle that you face in your life is a win as long as you have God. pray together and then we're going to uh, a little bit more worship and then go to the word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this has been no subtle reminder that we are wrapped up still and, and people might like to look at the history books and think it's been a really long time, but I, I suppose to you it doesn't seem like a long time. Um, but we were wrapped up in still the great conflict between good and evil, the great conflict between your people and the enemies of you, the enemies of your people. There is a spiritual war ongoing in our midst, and we like to say to ourselves, well, this is not part of that spiritual war, this is not part of that spiritual war, but the truth is, it's all part of that spiritual war. Even the good things, even the things that we love, that we enjoy, that are okay to embrace, are part of that spiritual war. They're meant to encourage, lift us up, help us go in the right direction, and sometimes we take them for our own sort of sustenance or to fill our desires, and then that turns the good thing into a bad thing. Lord, it is a spiritual war. You remind us of that with absolute certainty. That it's good against evil, but the truth is that battle rages inside of us. And the one who reigns supreme over top of it, the one who conquers evil, the one who overcomes death and sin, that is no one less than Jesus. It is Jesus. And through accepting that we have sin, that we have a rift between us and you, that we would die for our sins, have died for our sins, have been dead in our sins, through accepting that truth and believing in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and the payment that He paid for us and beginning to live our lives going forth for Him. By nothing less than that, we are saved. You are our God and you have provided the open door. And we want to thank you for that. We got to praise you for that. We ask you for for help to move forward, to take steps, to reach new heights in Jesus. But really, for anyone who's in the room who doesn't know you personally, we ask you, Lord, for their salvation. That their heart would be open, their minds would be open, that they would recognize that you alone are God and that you have sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for sins. And that through accepting him, 
through believing in the salvation he provides, through calling out, even if, if that person is struggling to understand, just to call out, okay, God, please save me however you would. That would be enough because it's been accomplished through Jesus. Father, we praise you for the ability to be at this place, spend a little time together. You know the world is in a desperate place, and we live in it. And so we're asking you, Lord, for the health and the endurance and the strength and the discernment for our country, but more importantly, Lord, for the kingdom of God that's wrapped up in every country. We believe that you are present in people all over the earth. And so we're asking you, Lord, to reign supreme in each one of us that we might be the best possible example. Lord, as we continue to worship you today, make our worship of some value. Help us to truly recognize who you are and give you the glory you deserve, even though we are called failed beings, we made our mistakes, we might not have quite the voice or quite the energy that you deserve. Lord, help this honor you. As we give our tithes and offerings, Lord, we ask you to bless those funds, bless the giver, bless your work, your process, the way you have it all. So we don't pretend to understand the full recipe of everything you are up to. Or we just want to honor you however we can. We ask you, Lord, to be with us during the remainder of our time today. That what happens here would honor you and be on the right side of that spiritual war. On your side. Advancing the kingdom here on earth. We praise you for all of it. In Jesus' name.
just recently, uh, Sherry and I began watching a series on Netflix that's Netflix produced, and not all of them are good, can't vouch for all of them, but this one's actually pretty good, and there's really no vulgarity, and uh, there may have, I think there was one scene that was maybe a little too intimate that we skipped over, but we watched the first, uh, um, first season of it over the last couple of weeks, three weeks, something like that, and in the... In the series, there is a character, her name is Mel, and she has a sister whose name is Amy, and then there's a man named Jack who's become a good friend to Mel, and they're kind of moving in a romance and romantic direction, and uh, Sherry likes romance and shows, and I'm, I'm confessing openly, I like romance and shows. So I, I do like, I, I like the occasional battle violence, probably one of my favorite movies of all time is a war movie, um, but I, I really enjoy characterization, deep characters, characters that are real, characters that have real problems or real successes, that kind of thing. That's what I really enjoy in movies. And a lot of the romance-type movies or romantic, even romantic comedy-type movies have that. And so I enjoy that. So we watched this series. And in this series, the, the two sisters had had an argument. And basically they were arguing about whether or not the one woman was running away because of her grief because she lost her husband. And um, the other woman was trying to have her come back to be near her in Los Angeles and, and deal with the problem. And they were arguing about that. And really, they kind of got off track and started just kind of arguing about their life and their disagreements and the fact that the one girl had had to take care of the other girl starting at the time she was 11 years old and had to kind of give up her life to take care of the other one and so on. And so they really got off track and started arguing about that. And then... Um, Afterwards, they both felt bad about the argument. And Jack is talking to Mel, and he says to Mel, uh, first of all, she says, I really need to go back and apologize to my sister. And both of them had said wrong things. She said, but I really need to go back and apologize to my sister. And, Mel, and Jack says to Mel, the view is always better from the high road. And this is saying that maybe I've understood the basic principle of it in the past, but I've never actually heard anyone say it. And I thought, that's an interesting saying. The view is always better from the high road. In other words, if you take, he was meaning to say, if you take the high road, you go back and apologize. You, you're the generous one. You're the kind one. While you, it has, really doesn't have anything to do with her relationship necessarily with her sister, the saying is saying that she'll feel better. She'll see things better. She'll see a better view or have a better outlook on life if she takes the high road and goes back and, and says her apologies and, and seeks her sister's forgiveness. Some years ago, in fact, I found out today uh, that it was seven years ago. Um, some, I took some youth to a camp in Tennessee. Uh, I found out because Facebook popped up with one of those little memories. So this is your picture. It was my picture I most commented on seven years ago. And it was a picture from the Camp, camp Bayoka, which is the Baptist camp just outside Gatlinburg, Tennessee. And I took some teenagers there. And out the back of the... Uh, cafeteria area, which also had become the games area and everything else because it was rainy a lot while we were there. There was this very steep slope down to where the other area of the camp was. And when you were going down the very steep slope, you literally had to kind of lean back and walk like this on the hill because it was, it was like this. And, but when people were going up that slope, they, wouldn't, they didn't want to do it. Nobody wanted to go up the slope because it was so steep. They would go around and take the winding road path, which was like a mile <laughs> around the hill. But our group insisted on going up the steep hill to get to the top, which was much faster. And as we were going up the steep hill to the top in a much faster fashion, you're going to be in the cafeteria in like 30 seconds, maybe 90 seconds, because we, we were running. And the people that were walking the long road 
we could see them walking along, and they looked fine. They didn't look like they were struggling at all. And then, worse than that, we saw some people coming down the really steep hill, and they looked like they were going fast, and it was like pretty easy. It was like if they had just let go, they just would have fallen, rolled down the hill, right? Which wouldn't have been good. But the point is, that made me think about how all of life is kind of neither on the top of the hill nor on the bottom of the hill. It's all sort of on the side of the hill. We're all either headed to heaven or hell, as Jason so aptly put it. Um, and depending on where you are and where you think you are, it's going to have a big impact on how you think about other people and the situations and the things that they do, things that they say even. It's very easy to be accusatory towards somebody who says something mean because you're not realizing that they're in the middle of trudging up a very steep hill and you're like, nobody should behave that way. But the truth is, if you were trudging up a very steep hill, you might behave the exact same way. And so I want you to bear that in mind then as we look at these verses today. It comes from a kind of an odd place for me because this is not where I had intended to preach out of today, but the Lord led me here and really kind of convicted me that there's at least one piece in here that really affected me deeply and I, that I needed to share. So that's why we're going there. So we do tend to shout amen, say hallelujah, snort, yell uno, something. Uh, as we go to God's word, as we remember that this is that moment of time in which God is able to speak. This is not me speaking, this is God speaking. So you get it right, you listen to what God has to say, and you can be transformed. We get excited about that. So uh, give me a hooter or a holler as we go to Jonah chapter 2. What? This is God's word. Thank you for those of you who participated in my silly little exercise and have been doing so, some of you, for years. Um, not everybody feels up to doing that, and there is no judgment if you don't participate, obviously in light of the sermon that we're about to look at, I think that would be wise, right? All right, so it's Jonah chapter 2. Very quick background story for Jonah. Jonah's a prophet. He preaches to God's people, the Israelites. Uh, he is known to be a prophet. He was well known as a prophet. And then God gives him the job of going and sharing God's message of destruction to the Ninevites. He does not want to do that. Backstory, historically, there's a huge army 120 miles from Jerusalem that's going to destroy Jerusalem and his way of life as he knows it. So in other words, impending doom is coming upon him and his people. God sends him to prophecy to Nineveh that, that God is going to destroy Nineveh. He doesn't want to do that because in his heart he figures they'll probably repent and if they do, God will relent and then that will allow them to destroy his people. So he won't trust God with the outcome is kind of what happens. And he, much like the Israelite people have become at this time, he does not want to go and take God's message to this pagan, backwards nation that is Nineveh. Because of that, he kind of wants to flee to the opposite side of the world, winds up on a ship, they throw him overboard because of a great storm, and he tells them, if you just throw me overboard, you'll be fine. They throw him overboard, and lo and behold, they are fine, except for all the cargo they got rid of. But other than that, they're fine. And then he winds up in the middle of a big fish. Not a whale, but a fish. Okay, not going to get into the historicity of it, but a, a similar event to this happened in like uh, in the early 1900s, and a man was found alive in a fish off the coast of like Greenland or something. So before you say it can't possibly be true, it has happened even in our day and age in modern history. But bottom line is, it happened then. He wound up in a fish. So he's in a fish. It's not a good situation. Let me just say, preface this: he's in a very dark place this particular moment in his life. And then he prays. It says, chapter 2, verse 1, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish. And he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. Thou didst hear my voice. For thou hast cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me, and thy breakers and billows passed over me. 
So I said, I have been expelled from thy sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward thy holy temple. Stop there for a second. So these first four, four verses are sort of an encapsulation of what has happened to Jonah explaining. So God has cast him away into the seas and then into the belly of the giant fish. He is literally laying in the stomach juices of a giant fish. Okay? And he says, I cry out to you now and... Uh, the, the last verse is, Nevertheless, I will look again toward thy holy temple. And you could simply say, and people might take, want to take it real literally, and say, well, that means he's going to look to the, let's say, east toward Jerusalem. Right? And there are people over the ages who have made that a way to pray, that they have to work toward, they have to look toward Jerusalem, not necessarily because it's God's place, but for some reason they have to look in a certain direction when they pray. And that is, this is nothing about that. This has nothing to do with that. It's figurative language, meaning that he is looking for his sustenance, he is looking for his care, he is looking to be rescued to what he knows is the only being in the universe that can actually rescue him. So he is looking to God, he's looking to God's way of doing things, he's looking to God's pattern for him, he's looking to God, even at this moment, let's be really clear, he's in the darkest place, I'm going to say that he's in the darkest place, physically speaking, that he's ever been. I don't think it's the darkest place spiritually that he's ever been. Not anymore, at least, because the darkest place spiritually he's ever been was when God said, go to Nineveh, and he said, I don't want to do it. <laughs> that was probably, he, he developed into overt rebellion against God. That was a pretty dark place. Here, it's dark physically. He's in the belly of a fish. There's no light. He's under the sea. He's going to be devoured. He's going to die, whatever. But he's been sustained alive in a physically very dark place. And what does he choose to do? He chooses to look to God, the only one who truly can save him. Okay? And he says, nevertheless, because God, God, you put me in this place. You're the one that put me in the belly of this fish. You're the one that chastised me. You're the one that punished me and put me here. You caused this to happen. But even so, I will look again toward your holy temple. Verse 5. Water encompassed me to the point of death. Again, describing a situation. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its, with its bars was around me forever. So in other words, he's saying, I was done. My goose was cooked. There was nothing. I had nothing left. It was all settled. It was done. And he says, but thou hast brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. And so while all he might have left is that God has kept him alive, let's be clear, God has kept him alive. While he has no money, no job, no hope of health, no ministry, he's not publicly prophesying anymore, no more calling from God because he rebelled against it, and there's no way you can preach to an individual while you're stuck in the belly of a fish. Right? He literally has nothing left except his life. And at that moment, he realizes, but I have my life. Meaning, God is not done with me yet. Then he says in verse 7, we're almost done with the text for the day. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to thee into thy holy temple. Now, we don't know whether he's referring to thy holy temple, meaning the temple that was in Jerusalem, or whether the holy temple that is in heaven. But the bottom line is, his prayer reached God. 
And on a side note, if I could, there really is nowhere that you could ever be with the possible exception of hell, and I don't want to get into that doctrinally, but there is nowhere that you could ever be that your prayer could not reach God. If you are willing to truly turn your heart... Now, there are people who are, you know, their heart is hard, and they'll pray something like, well, you stink in God, stink and do this, or, you know, God doesn't have to listen to those prayers. God is not obligated to hear your prayers, but there is nowhere that a right heart, the heart that actually desires God's will and God's blessing, God's sovereignty, God's salvation could not be heard. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to thee into thy holy temple. Verse 8. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. Are you, are you ready for that verse right now in this passage? I wasn't. I'm like, what the heck? Where did that come from? Listen to it again. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. And, and so immediately I'm going, what, what place has that right here in this prayer of Jonah to God to save him. Now understand, uh, he came off the ship, and on the ship they were praying to all their false gods and ancestors and everybody else trying to get saved, and nobody did. And then they chucked Jonah off, and then God let them be spared, put the storm to ease and let them be spared. So that's a fairly recent memory, but he's been in the fish now for a couple days. He's got bigger problems, bigger fish to fry, if I may say that, right? And so where does this come from? This is like, when, this, uh, I've, I've been praying with people and, and uh, people are paying, like, oh God, you know, save me from this. I've got this problem. And they're passionately praying about the need. And then they'll all of a sudden, oh, by the way, my Uncle Sally or my, my Uncle Sam has cancer. And like, you're kind of like, the, the, the switch of topics is so fast. And you're like, what, what just happened? You know, we just did 70 seconds on the horrible situation that's going on, and I'm praying for this, and oh, and by the way, Sam has cancer. And it's like, the, the switch is so fast, you can hardly, it's like whiplash. And that's what I first thought. Doesn't it seem like the switch is so fast? He went from, God, I'm crying out to you. You put me here. You put me in the belly of the fish. I got nothing left. I'm totally done. But I do have my life, and I'm going to use that to cry out to you one last time, to those who follow vain idols... Those who regard, regard is a little different than follow. It means it's like pay any attention to, maybe give significance to. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. And it does have a very powerful and unique point that he is realizing here. It isn't that he worshiped vain idols. Is that in the story of Jonah anywhere? I mean, you remember the story of Jonah a little bit, I think. Did he ever worship vain idols? Do you remember when he was back in Israel and he was preaching? You know what he was primarily preaching against? Idolatry. That was his primary message because the people were struggling with idolatry or with mixing God in with their other religions, right? So he's never really had that problem, or has he? We'll come back to that before we're through and we have two verses left. But I will sacrifice to thee with the voice of thanksgiving. So this is in contrast to that. He says, I will sacrifice to thee with the voice of thanksgiving, that which I have vowed I will pay. In other words, I will do. I said I would do whatever you told me to do. I will do whatever, I told, whatever you told me to do. I will follow your directions. I will give what I promised. I will do what I said I would do. He says very clearly, salvation is from the Lord. Verse 10. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Now, interestingly enough, it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land within walking distance of Nineveh. It's an interesting side note. All right. So there's a few things I want you to see here, really three. 
and they tie strongly together, but the first one is segmented. All right, so the first thing I want you to see here, take a deep breath for a second with me, because this, be this could be offensive. Just, okay, here we go. There is a darker place. I, I know that you may look at your life, you may say, we, we live in a nation where people are struggling with certain decisions that they're making. You may say, uh, I have a health condition, or I have a psychological condition, or uh, my boss is this, or my significant other is this, or you may look at your situation, you may go, it's kind of bad, and I'll come back to talk about that in a second, but I just want you to embrace, to recognize for a second that there is a darker place. Jonah was clearly in a darker place, and we see he got there by disobedience. The truth is we all have a measure of disobedience. We all do things that are wrong, right? And, and God has to correct us, but God has never so corrected any of us. I think I'm overstepping just slightly to say that. The, none of us have actually been step, stuck in a fish. I think some of us may have actually been corrected so severely by God to be in the darkest place, and that place might actually have been comparable to being stuck in a fish. But the bottom line is, we can clearly see that there is a darker place. You are able to sit in the chair. You are able to sit under lights with electricity. You are able to walk out of the hallway and get a fresh drink of water if you want it. You'll get some food later today. Everybody in this room will. And if you're not planning on getting food later today, see me before you go because I will make sure that happens. We will eat today. We are in a free country. Most of the people in this room have some kind of job or some kind of income or whatever. Most of the people in this room have some kind of ministry. You get right down to it, you can see pretty clearly that there is a darker place. Now, based on what we talked about, wherever you are, if there is indeed a darker place, then the truth is you are either on the way to the darker place or you are on the way from the darker place. I think it's, it's brilliantly uh, obvious that if we are on the way from the darker place and we remember the darker place vividly, then we tend to say, whew, <laughs> cool, this is better. If you're coming to, if you're after not having a job for a few years when you're working and you're making the money and the bills are getting paid and you're finally starting to feel stable, you're like, oh, that's better, you know? Or if you, right after you get done having cancer or right after you get done with a horrible fight with your significant other and it's all mended and healed and it seems to be better, or right after the darker place, that darker place might not be the darkest place because there's probably still a darker place, right? But right after the darker place, we feel better. But then when we're on the way into the darker place, we're looking at what lies ahead of us. We're like, oh boy, trepidation. Oh boy, apprehension. I'm going to have to say, I'm going to have to do, I'm going to have to face. So our relationship to the darker place we think is significant. I'm here to tell you, this is all you need to really know. And that is, there is a darker place. Wherever you are right now, there is a darker place. As bad as things may be, there is a darker place. And that's what Jonah figured out. At the last breath of his life, when he lifted up to God and said, the salvation is from the Lord, he figured out, listen, there is a darker place. How many people have prayed deathbed salvation prayers? And are you one to say how many of those people made it into heaven? I'm not. I believe that they laid on their deathbed after wasting their life, and they're di literally dying, and with their last three or four breaths, prayed a salvation prayer to God, and they meant with all their heart, and they meant that if they lived, they would love the Lord. If they lived, they would follow the Lord. In the darkest place of their life, they reached up and they said, oh God, save me. And if they meant that, I believe absolutely they were saved and the minute they were in heaven, as soon as they died. If all you had left was breath to pray, God, would you save me? Would you pray, God, would you save me? If all you had left was breath to cry out to God, would you turn to God and cry out to God? Or would you say, God, 
get me out of this dark place? Would you say, God, I don't like it here? Would you say, God, Uncle Sam's got cancer? Where would your heart or mind be? All you really need to realize is that there is a darker place. I mean, you can say then, extrapolate that and say, well, I don't want to go there. And then there might be some steps you would take. You can say, I've never been there, so I don't really have that experience. But there still might be some steps you would take because of that. You might say, I think I'm going there. There might be some steps you could take. There is a darker place. I I spoke with a young man before I came uh, to church. In fact, I was on the phone with him for about 45 minutes to an hour. And he's a, a professing confessing alcoholic. He's a Christian man who's been heavily into alcohol for about 15 years, and for about the last eight, nine months, he's gone without alcohol. So he's doing by his profession. I'm just telling you what he told me. But he's in a dark place. You know why he's in a dark place? Because he's got a number of friends where he's at in a, a treatment facility. He's got a number of friends who recently went off the wagon and now are dead. They didn't die from alcohol poison. They died from whatever they died from. They, they left and they died. They literally no longer are alive. And he's like, that doesn't make any sense. How, how is it that I'm alive and I'm, and just realistically compared to them even, I'm a piece of dirt. How is it that I'm alive and they're not? It's called survivor's guilt. Sometimes you come out of the bright place or out of the dark place, lost somebody along the way, and then you have survivor's guilt because you're like, how in the heck did I survive? See, there's a lot of ramifications of it, but the bottom line is you need to realize, and, and I think most of us do, there is a darker place. Separately, this text shows us we could go to a darker place. Jonah was preaching the truth in and around Jerusalem, the middle of Judea. And people often listen to him, or at least profess to. He was making some progress, but not a great deal. Not as much as probably should have been the case since he was a prophet for God. And through one choice of disobedience, he went to a much darker place than he thought he would ever see in his lifetime. Jonah knew God's great mercy. I mean, he knew that God was merciful. You know how we know that he... I mean, come on, listen to the story. How do we know that he knew that God was merciful? Because he didn't want to go to Nineveh to preach to the Ninevites because he thought God would be merciful toward the Ninevites. That's the whole reason he didn't want to go. So Jonah knew God's great mercy. And he then disobeyed God. Now, did he disobey God because he thought God would be merciful or because he thought God's grace or or just because he thought he would take the burden of his nation for protecting all of Israel on himself? And if he suffered and died, if he was punished, well, I think that's that's the case because when he was on the boat and the storm had come, he said, just chuck me overboard and you'll all be fine. And I submit to you that back in Jerusalem or back in Judea, wherever he was at, back in in the port that he was leaving to, leaving the travel on, that's where his heart was at. He was like, well, if God destroys me, at least Israel will survive. But in the midst of that, he realized that he forgot that there is a darker place, right? And suddenly he was on the way to go to a darker place. So two things to take away. Number one, there is a darker place. And number two, you can go to a darker place. You could go to a darker place. And if you've ever been to a darker place than you are right now, if you can see one in your history or your past, then you realize you could go there again. It's very realistic. The third thing under this first point is you may actually be in a darker place. Now, this one's a little less offensive. We are now living with the constant struggle to know what is basically true, to know what people are teaching and whether they're lying or telling the truth, a bull-faced lie to your face. 
publish stuff out there like it's news, but it isn't true. I, I'm not jumping on any political agenda. I, I am, by my nature, not a political person. But the fact is that what we have thought was true in a lot of cases is being attacked. And good people are being hurt. And you may be one of them. We're all tired. We look around this church. If you look about for the adults in this room, everyone was deemed essential. When they ask who's essential, like literally everyone was essential. We are, we've all been working our butts off for months. We've added things to our schedule that stress us, tire us, etc. And there's this, I, I was driving in the car the day before yesterday, I was talking with somebody, and they said, do you feel the effect of the stress that we're all going through? And I stopped for a second, I just said, do I? And just as I w- was about to answer the question, I felt like right here in the back of my head, above my neck, on the back of my head, which is like maybe where sinuses are, whatever, I just felt like this tension, like, like there was a knots there. Half of what the world is doing that's so crazy right now is because we're coming, as a nation, we're facing a pandemic. As a nation, we're facing people teaching us to do one thing or people teaching us to do another. People requiring us to do one thing or requires civil liberties are potentially being attacked, or in some cases, they're not so. I mean, you got suddenly, you have to sort this whole mess for yourself and figure out what you're supposed to do, what you're supposed to do, where you're supposed to go. And it's a dark place. And you may be facing something with a family member, a friend, a relationship, on the job. You're facing things that literally you might not have thought you would ever face. And this is a darker place than February was. And I think that just might be true for literally everybody. You may be in a darker place. It's not the darkest place you could ever go. There's a still darker place. And you could go to a darker place, but you may actually be in a darker place now. Second thing I want you to see out of there then, and I guess you could say this is the fourth thing, but I I think that understanding of the darker place that Jonah was in is really all one thing. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. Remember I mentioned that we would come back to this? Well, here we go. We're going to talk about it right now. In the dark... When people are in a darker place, okay? Now, I don't mean in the dark, like literally you go in a cave where there's no light whatsoever and it's so dark that you can't see the end, you know. I'm talking about the figurative dark. When it's difficult, when things aren't what you expected, when you're trying to solve a problem, you're trying to get to the bottom of how do we do this, whatever it might be, when you're in a darker place, people have a sort of a choice to make. They're searching to see. What is the answer to this dilemma that I face? How do I solve this problem? How do I uh, get to work on time despite I have these troubles? How do I pay my bills despite I have these troubles? How do I fix that thing in the church, do that ministry, carry out what I'm supposed to do, continue with my calling? How do I take care of my little sister? Right? you got these dilemmas, and then suddenly you're, you're, you find yourself searching to see, figuring out. Well, what's going on in our world today, and, and I submit to you probably has been going on since the Garden of Eden, is that people are using falsehoods to put things into perspective. Okay? Sherry and I went to go see the Grand Canyon uh, during our, the, our week-long vacation, actually like nine-day-long vacation, ten-day-long vacation, something like that, on our 20th wedding anniversary, so some years ago now. While we were at the Grand Canyon, we, we, we read in the pamphlet that they give you to see the Grand Canyon about uh, some of the structures that was there, the buildings and the railing and like that, and people wanted to be able to look out and beautiful, majestic view. Why is the railing there? Why can't you walk closer to the edge of the Grand Canyon? 
Does anybody know why the railing is there and why you can't walk close to the edge of the Grand Canyon? Nope. You'd think that might be true. What? No, you'd think that might be true. That's why I would do it. What were you going to say? Is that what you were going to say, too? Art? Downdrafts or wind? Okay, yeah, and that could be a factor. It's because of suicides. Because at one point in time, roughly 113 people a year were diving off the cliff into the Grand Canyon, killing themselves. Now, before you judge them, they were in a darker place, obviously, right? And it could be some, like they always do this massive investigation to figure out did the person slip or get blown over because that was a real thing. That's true. Did, did the rocks slip away and they fall in and like that? But at one point in time, there were bunches of people throwing themselves off the Grand Canyon in front of an audience. Occasionally they would go at night and do it, but many of them did it right in front of everybody and said, I'm fed up with this world and dove off the cliff. And so now the railing has to be so far back that if somebody goes to dive off the cliff, that there are people that will have time to try to stop them before they can go over the railing, over the fence, which is kind of difficult to even get over, but over the fence, and then go out there. It's nuts. Yeah, it's, it's nuts. That's what it's like when you look into a dark place. You go, I have a hard time fathoming that. I have a hard time connecting with that. But there is a darker place that we don't necessarily understand. There is a place that we could potentially go. You may even be feeling some of the effects of a dark place now. As people are searching around in the darkness trying to figure out what to do with it, occasionally a falsehood that makes perfectly logical sense jumps up and seems to put everything in perspective. And then they latch onto it and try to go that way. They try to do that thing, like, like I'm going to kill myself so everyone will feel sad. That's crazy. That, I mean, I, I don't mean to be mean. I have had at, suicidal thoughts at, at one point in time, or maybe a couple of times, actually, in my past. So I don't mean to say it's crazy like insanity or they're stupid. I'm not saying anything negative about them. What I'm saying is that's not logical to get the result that you're looking for. If you take steps and come up to the point where you go, okay, well, there's no way this can be re redeemed, then like Jonah, you say, well, I'm still alive. I, there's still the possibility, right? There are people who have had suicidal thoughts, and then 10 years later, they're millionaires or multimillionaires because they decided not to, and then they invested themselves in something, and it went well, and they really became prosperous. Now, I'm not saying money is a measure of success. There are people who have had suicidal thoughts, and then at that time or sometime later, months whatever, gave their life to Christ, and now they're kingdom of God Christians witnessing sharing Christ with people. We have members in this church who will tell you, the day I was going to commit suicide, I heard the gospel and accepted the Lord, and I've been transformed, never looked back, never had those thoughts again, or if I did, I knew what to do with them, and now I'm serving God. Okay? So what I'm saying to you is that they're in the dark place that people get. They grope around for things. And now we begin to understand why Jonah said, those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. It isn't that in the midst of the darkness, they, they clutch onto God. Instead, they clutch onto an idea. They clutch onto something someone said. They clutch onto a hobby. They clutch onto a chemical. They clutch onto a version of intimacy. They clutch onto something that seems to give them life, that seems to give them something that they can work with, that seems to put things in perspective. And I'm going to say something now. I don't want anybody to, please don't crucify me immediately. Okay? But somebody in a very dark place says, hey, pornography is my salvation. I'm going to start looking at naked women, and boy, I feel better when I do that. 
Or somebody in a very dark place will say, I'm going to start shooting cocaine again. And, you, and before we say, that's just absolutely nuts, that doesn't result, that's exactly what he's talking about. He's saying there are moments in time where people will take something that has no value, that cannot achieve the end result of what you're looking for, a whole and happy life, that cannot get you where you're trying to go, yet in the darkness, it's the light, the thing that they latch onto. It becomes that vain idol. It is useless. This vain means useless. An idol means something that you give value to. Right? And so they latch onto something that seems like it can give value in the moment, and then they get stuck there. But Jonah realized that when you do that, latch onto something that cannot give you value in the moment, and when you get stuck there, that you're missing out on the one big thing, which is that God is the author of salvation. God is the only one who can save. So don't go after social media as your salvation. Don't go after any kind of chemicals. Don't go after any kind of hobby or some kind of entertainment. Don't go after foods that taste good. None of those things are your salvation. They will not get you to a happy and whole life. They may buy you a little breathing room in the dark, but then when you do come out of that darker moment and move on, you're going to face them as an idol in your life. Then you're going to have to deal with them. And the young man that I was talking to on the phone, he was saying, you know, like, this is, he said this, he said, I wish that I had known all the time that I was doing drinking how good it feels to be sober. And I said, well, you know, the funny thing is, you kind of did know. I said, there were times we went six months, nine months, a year, or whatever, right? And he goes, yeah, there was. And I, and I said, and you felt pretty good every time you had a milestone, three months into sobriety, like you felt really good, right? And he said, yeah, I felt really good. I said, see, you did know. But then every time what happens is he reached a moment that was darker than the others, and there's that light again. They're, and that's what people are doing. They're going after vain idols. And what is the result when you go after vain idols? What is the result when you recognize these other things in the dark place that you, you don't even want to be? You didn't put yourself there. It's not your problem necessarily, but somehow or other you wind up in a dark place and you go after that thing that seems like it will solve the problem. The result is you lose your faithfulness. Or you could say you're with Godness. Or your serve godness, or your relationship to godness, right? You lose your connection to the sovereign God of the universe. Not, not in the way that it doesn't say you lose your salvation, right? We're not talking about that. If you're a Christian and you reach a dark place and then you latch on to something that seems like it will take care of you in that moment, provide you with something, then you lose your faithfulness. So you come out of the dark place. And you ought to be serving God. You ought to be pitting all your strength and doing what God would have you to do. But instead, you're nurturing your vain idol. You're, you're protecting it. You're keeping it safe from the rest of your life. You're pocketing it. You're carrying it around. You're pulling it out whenever the darkness seems to threaten again. Right? You're running back to that thing all the time because it has become your idol. Because when you were in the darkness, it spared you. It gave you a little room. It gave you something to think about. And now that you have to spend all that time nurturing that thing, all that time recognizing that thing, all that time having that thing in you and with you, you have all that less time to serve God, less time to be faithful, less you to put on the table. Faithfulness is you putting more of you on the table for God every day. And when you go into a dark place and choose a way out that is not expressly God, and I'm going to give you a couple of illustrations in a second in case this is not hitting home. But unless you, when you go in there and you choose a place that is not, a way out that is not expressly God, realize you will have to baby it. You will have to care for it. It will never grow up, and if it ever does, it will dominate you completely. 
You will have to feed it. You will have to protect it. And if you take that idol and make that a thing that gives you your light, your hope, etc., then you will have that for the rest of your life. Unless you turn instead to God and repent, which goes back to the message that Jonah was preaching before he was told to go to Nineveh. Repent of your vain idols. Instead, be faithful to God. Now, interestingly enough, in the King James, this word here, where we, in the, NI, or in the NAS, I read faithfulness, is actually translated mercy. And so folks who regard vain idols forsake their mercy. And I thought about that. And I thought, well, how could a word be translated faithfulness and mercy? Well, it's very easy. Because you come out of the dark place and then you very quickly see others in a dark place and, it, and you're kind of like, well, they probably deserve it. They're probably in that dark place because they deserve it. There goes your mercy. It's also your faithfulness to God because what are you supposed to do? Step in there and be a light. Well, there's a person over there who's lost and going to hell, but they deserve it. Well, so do you. So do I. We all deserve it. right? It's very easy to lose our mercy when we lose our faithfulness which one major way in which people do that is clutching onto a vain idol. Finding peace without peace with God, that's no peace. Feeling a little better walking in the garden, taking up a hobby, becoming an artist or a cooker, not a chef. Being a chef is a profession, and it takes work, right, Carrie? It takes a lot of work to get there. I'm talking about you start cooking and baking things as a solution to your stresses and the difficulties that makes you feel better. Playing a game, doing your project, finishing a project, right? talking to other Christians, right? all of these things. When you find peace without peace with God, what you have is a vain idol. Protesting, protesting abortion at the abortion clinic without sharing Jesus and the gospel, about making it about Jesus, which if you're going to do that, why are you doing it in front of the abortion clinic exactly? I'm trying to figure out still. But anyway, the point is, do, protesting what somebody is doing without making it about Jesus, without showing that salvation is in God through Jesus Christ, that protest, that's wrong. You say, well, nonviolent protests are okay. If, if it's not about Jesus and the gospel, if peace comes, it will not be okay. Because let's say, for example, you go out and protest what's wrong in the world, and then they start changing things. You're like, well, change this. Then all of a sudden, the change becomes a vain idol. And then all kinds of things are getting changed that didn't need to be changed in the first place. What really needed to be changed was people's relationship with God through Jesus. Amen. If you find peace without peace with God, you have no peace. There's no peace. There will only be a spirit of change, a spirit of desperation, a spirit of need. You will get so good at searching for a way out of the darkness that you can go in dark place after dark place. In fact, you'll get so good at searching for a way out of the darkness that you will find darkness where there is no darkness. To which, Jonah says, those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. Finding happiness or meeting your desires without rightness. That's giving up your faithfulness. Finding a way to persevere and survive without putting your life on the line for God. That's giving up your faithfulness. And the truth is, as, is in, as it says in 1 Corinthians 6, that if you do those things, 
you will never see the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. I'm going to read it. I didn't, I didn't have it memorized. 1 Corinthians 6, but I'm almost there already. It's a passage not unfamiliar to those who've studied 1 Corinthians anyway. And it says this. Do you not know that the unrighteous, in other words, if you're not right, if you're not found in Christ, if you don't get your righteousness through Christ, if some form of salvation other than Jesus saves you, do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. How do you get deceived? You look for an answer, you get a wrong answer, you accept the wrong answer. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, those who misuse sex, nor idolaters, those who give value to something other than God, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you and me. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. See, God already made a way out of the darkness. God is the way out of the darkness. God is the God of salvation. And how easy it is in the midst of the darkness to find something of value and to attribute value to it. And if you do that, you will give up your faithfulness. And Jonah realized it. Third point. A measure of faithfulness, then, is looking to God for sustenance. And only God. Emphasize that. A measure of faithfulness is looking to God for sustenance. Crying out to God and trusting in His mercy. The name of God is powerful. The personality of God, the character of God is powerful just because He's God. In Acts 19, there's a story where certain vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon themselves to call over them which had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure you by Jesus from whom Paul preacheth. In other words, we kick you out, demons and evil spirits, by Jesus whom Paul preacheth. And they gave glory to God, supposedly, and they, they lifted up Jesus and they lifted up Paul. You know what the end of that story is, right? Seven sons of Sceva who did that very same thing encountered a demon that kicked their butts and they would come out bloody and in their underwear. And they, all because the demon said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who the heck are you? Don't play at this thing we call Christianity. Because there is a darker place and when you arrive there, you need God on your side. And if you don't have it, that place, that thing that you encounter, it's a spiritual war. That demon, that evil spirit, that, that foul teaching, it's going to kick your butt. But if you truly are walking with God and if it's about God, then you'll have a measure of faithfulness. You'll be looking to him, to him for sustenance even now and then you'll get used to looking at him for sustenance and then when you arrive in that dark place and others are groping around for an answer, you will find Jesus there. Because you are already in connection with him. Romans 10.13 says, For whosoever calleth upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. 1 Corinthians 1.2 says, Unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all, listen, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. 
wherever you are, you call upon the name of the Lord. That's how it's done. A measure of faithfulness is looking to God to sustain you. If you can sustain yourself, you don't need Jesus and you're on your way to hell. If someone else can sustain you, you don't need Jesus and you're on your way to hell. If your job, your money, your talent, your skill, your work, your mouth, your mind, if those things can sustain you, if your family can sustain you, then you don't need Jesus and you're on your way to hell. But if you can decide that only Jesus can sustain me, then you have salvation and you're on your way to heaven. And, wait for it, you can take other people with you. You don't get just one ticket. You get the ministry of reconciliation and you become a ticket salesman and the tickets are free. But in the midst of the fish in that dark place, I submit to you, not the darkest place spiritually that he ever was, but a very dark place, Jonah realized that our God is the God of salvation and he alone is the God of salvation and you can ixnay that and you can argue against that and you can badmouth them and you can cut them down more wickedly with your tongue than anybody else and put them in their place so that they shut up and stop talking about things that you don't want to hear. You can do all of that. You can get angry, bang the pots and pans, throw things around in the garage, slam the door. You can find a way to convey to people that you are in a dark place and everyone should leave you alone while you get your stuff under control. You can do all of that. But if any of that sustains you in any way, if that gets you through to the next moment in time, if it sustains you long enough to do something different later, then you need to understand that that sustenance is not of Jesus. And he gave us that very evidently and very clearly when upon the cross, hanging there, bleeding out, barely able to breathe, he pushed himself, he lowered himself and pushed himself up again and lowered himself in order to be able to say, God, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But people are not living like that. They go into a dark place, maybe not of their own making, and they grope around for whatever they can find, whatever will work, whatever falsehood they can latch onto, whatever statement they want to make, whatever will get them through to the next place. There are some very desperate people doing very desperate things. And do we want to speak badly about them? Yes, but they're in a dark place. And the further from God they get, the further from God they are. And pity and mercy ought to be our hearts. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Acts 2.21, essentially at the inception of the church and the coming of the Holy Spirit. Romans 10.12, for there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all, listen to this, is rich unto all that call upon him. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Just, just realize that in the midst of the dark place, the standard is the same. We're asked for the same thing that we were asked for when the place was light. And that is faithfulness to God, following His commands, and seeing Him as our sustenance. There's a story, story, and we're coming to the conclusion of the prodigal son. You've probably heard a little something about the man. He went and squandered his portion of his father's wealth and then came back home. 
when he was over there feeding the pigs and was actually tempted to eat some of the stuff. I heard one commentary guy say he probably did eat some of the stuff. I don't know. Maybe he did, even though that would have made him an unclean Jew to do so. In any case, he says, I will rise and go to my father, and I will say unto my father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. And then he does go to his father, and the son said unto the father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and am not worthy to be called thy son. So wake up, call. But here's the reality. We are not worthy to be called children of God. We are called children of God because he is worthy to be God. So when you see somebody in a dark place and they're misbehaving, realizing they may be, realize they just might be groping around for the only light they can find, the only thing they can do to make it better, the only sustenance they can come up with. They might be looking after a vain idol of their own. And then you might want to start with you and ask yourself, why are you not there explaining to them that true hope is found in Jesus? Whenever you see somebody act stupid and you go, man, I think that's stupid. I want you to next ask yourself, have I ever told them about Jesus? Have I ever blatantly shared that Jesus Christ is the way unto salvation and asked them to be saved before? And before you say what they're doing is stupid again, you make sure that you have done that because you've got no right. Now, if they do decline Jesus after you share it with them, then it falls under they are condemned already by what they've done with the Son of God, and that's stupid. Then you can actually say, well, I did share Jesus with them, and they refused it, and that is stupid. And then they go on and do other stupid things. You don't have to worry about that being stupid, because there's only one thing really in life that's stupid, and that is being condemned when salvation is free. There were three points. The first one was about the darker place. There is one. You could go there, and you may already be there. The second one is that those who regard vain idols, that is to say, those who search around for something to latch onto while they are in a dark place or at any time, for that matter, forsake their faithfulness. And the third one is a measure of faithfulness is looking to God for sustenance. And so really that's three points. It's looking to God for sustenance and he alone for sustenance. It's being obedient to his commands. And it is recognizing our condition that we are unworthy to be a son of God. And then we come to the conclusion. And it is simple. It is a message not unlike Jonah would have preached before the whole fish incident. It is repent, turn to God. So you repent and turn to God because there is a darker place. So right now where you are, before you say, I can't get around to it, I can't turn to God today, I can't trust him because of X. Because I'm busy, because I'm distracted, because I'm tired, because it's hot, because he's talked too long, because I don't like this word he used or how he said it or it seems accusatory. Before you give any excuse whatsoever, you repent and turn to God right where you are. Make no excuses, because there's a darker place. Repent and turn to God. Turn from yourself, from your own ideas, from your idols, from the things that entertain you, the things that sustain you. Turn to God. Let Him sustain you. Follow His commands. Be obedient to Him. Be found faithful. And realize that in your current condition, just the same as in any condition you've ever had in your life, you are unworthy. You would be considered unworthy if measured by your own actions. Unworthy to be called a child of God. But through Christ we receive His righteousness. It is not by your works per se that you will be found guilty. It is by whether or not you have accepted the works righteousness of Jesus who died on a cross for the joy that was set before him and was given the ability to sit down on his father's throne and it shall have all things put under his feet. 
Repent and turn to God. Because there is a darker place. Repent and return to God before you get there. Because if you can't do it now, you won't do it when you get there. Repent and turn to God before you get to a darker place. And if you do find yourself already in a darker place, repent and turn to God right then. And if you are in one now, right now, and the next time someone says something to you and it makes perfectly logical sense but doesn't have Jesus in it, you can say it doesn't have Jesus in it. That's not my sustenance. That's not my salvation. That will not get me to the place I'm trying to go. But Jesus will. And so I'm going to stick with Jesus if that's okay with you and even if it's not. Repent and turn to God because there is a darker place. Repent and turn to God before you get to a darker place. Repent, repent and turn to God from this place, which may be a dark place. Understand that there is light enough. If you are alive, there is light enough. There were no candles. There were no outlets. There was no fresh air. There was no food. There was no freedom. He literally could not stretch or move his elbow to the side, which may have been grinding into his ribs while he was being digested in the belly of a fish. If there is breath in your lungs, there is light enough to see that salvation is through Jesus Christ and by Jesus Christ alone. There is hope enough. As long as your heart still beats, there is hope. Long for the stillness. I know there is turmoil. I know it is dark and difficult at times. It drives you absolutely crazy. If you are righteous, I imagine your, your soul has been vexed by what we've been seeing going on in the world and the things that you've been facing. If you are not righteous, repent and turn to God. Long for the stillness, but settle nothing for nothing less than His presence. Not just to be able to make the world quiet and everything to go okay for a while. Don't settle for that. Settle nothing Settle for nothing less than the presence of God. Long for an end to the darkness while, even while you are in it. But don't settle for a lesser light. Not a lamp or a candle or a word of encouragement. Not a thing that will make you feel a little better for a while. Settle only for the light. Does anybody know right off the top of your head where the light comes from in heaven? Is there a sun? No. Where? From the throne of God. Settle for no less light then once we get there, the one that will be the only light. If you find light and it comes from somewhere else, that light will die. It will go away. But if you let your light be alone, the light that is coming from the throne of God now, look to God only as your sustenance. And believe me, it's going to be hard for some folks because they've got a web of sustenance that they've made for themselves. They've figured out that this way is okay. I got one closing illustration that will illustrate that, I think, well. But let me encourage you today. God would have us say this. Shake off the fish for crying out loud. Shake it off. Get up and be empowered by God. Jesus said one time when he was accosted on the Sabbath day, he was about to heal a man who had a crippled arm, and, and everybody was watching to see whether he would do it on the Sabbath day. And, he, and Jesus said unto them, What man shall there be among you that shall have one sheep, and if it fall into a pit on the Sabbath day, 
will he not lay hold on it and lift it out? Meaning, y'all do this for your sheep. Why would you think it's wrong for me to do this for this crippled man? That's what Jesus was saying. And then he says, how much then is a man better than a sheep? And then, almost kind of ruins it. He doesn't, but I'll explain to you what I mean. Wherefore, it is lawful to do well on the Sabbath days. So he was making an argument for why it's okay to work on the Sabbath day to heal people. How many Sabbath days has God had since the seventh day when he rested? Zero. God sees you right where you are, and he's willing to be your sustenance. The question is, are you willing to be found faithful? A couple of quick illustrations and I'm through. The first one is I was talking with a woman who, is, who has completely and utterly bought into one of the agendas of the world right now, and I'm being specifically vague on purpose, but I'm not going to gossip. I don't do that. I try not to anyway. She's completely bought into one of the agendas of the, that the world is teaching. About seven years ago, that wasn't true. She said, well, I was adamantly against this, but now I've been educated. Now I understand better. And so now I spend my time educating the world to embrace this agenda, which, by the way, is not true. It's, it's against what God teaches. And I said, so let me ask you this question. I said, if seven years ago you were adamantly against it and you knew for sure it was wrong, and then you suddenly realized you were wrong and embraced it, and then now it's seven years later, if you were so terribly wrong then, how do you know you're right now? talked for a few minutes, and she talked all around it. The truth is, she doesn't know. She was in a dark place. She latched onto that agenda that the world is teaching and says, it's okay. And for seven years, she's been trying to teach anyone else who will listen this agenda that she believes in. She doesn't know. So let me ask you, Christian. You believe in God? You believe Jesus is the Son of God? Did you learn it one day? Did one day you just come to know that was true? Is that what happened to you? Because if one day you just came to know that that was true, one day you decided, yeah, I think Jesus did live, and I think he did rise again, and I think, therefore, I, I believe in God, and I believe that, those, that he raised Jesus from the dead. And if that's about as far as that goes for you, then I'm, I'm kind of here to burst your bubble. You're probably not saved. If you just learned it, and that's all that happened to you, you're probably not saved. And I would say to you, how do you know you're right now if you're following, supposedly following God that way? On the other hand, if the Holy Spirit of God came and took up residence in you and now testifies with you and your spirit testifies as well, and you know for a fact that you're saved, and you know that God did something, well, now we might have something. Now maybe you actually are saved. If you know that something changed. And if you know that something changed, and you know that all these other people walking around there don't have that something that changed in you, then you might want to accept that they're in a darker place, and they need to hear about it. And let's assume they decide they don't want to get saved when you tell them about it. Are you out anything at all? Have you lost anything but a few minutes? If you really know your sustenance is God, then even when they say to you, oh, you're an idiot for believing, or I'm never going to talk to you again if you don't stop talking to me about this, if you don't stop with this Jesus crap, or if you would be persecuted or some guy would beat you down into a ditch somewhere. That's a dark place, right? But Jesus is already going to be there. Already there sustaining you. Already taking care of it. If he's truly your sustenance, then it becomes like, I can't get by without him. 
and we're letting other people get by without him. And then we're getting mad because they take away things that we like, because they say things that we don't like, because they do things that are violent. Who's that on? Well, if God's your sustenance, it's either on God or it's on you. Those are the only two people, only two beings that matter in that equation. Who's it on? The next time you think, man, that person's an idiot, why don't you share the gospel with them and see if they'll be saved? And then if they won't be, then at least they have the ammunition, the language, the wording, the teaching to do it if they want to. And you've fulfilled your obligation as a minister of reconciliation. There is a darker place. And a lot of what people are doing, they're doing because they are in a darker place. You repent. I repent. I want to turn to God and be found faithful. And I want you to join me in that because everybody I see here, I love. And I don't want to see anybody not do that. Jesus did not come to condemn, so why would we condemn? Rather, just say, there is a darker place. And in that darker place, there are going to be a lot of competing lights, but there is one light that will last for an eternity, and it is the throne of God. It is God's light. God has salvation. Let me close.